just like to welcome you all this morning. This is a, a surprise for me that I'm able to talk this morning, not just speak here, but I haven't been able to talk all week. On Thursday, we had a like an elder meeting, and I was barely getting through that, and then the, uh, the doctor called that night and prescribed a little heavier dosage of uh, medication, so I got the horse pill and doubled it and then took that with some other stuff, and it was, it was great. So here I am able to speak. This is, I just wasn't sure even on Friday. I, I said maybe, maybe, but I was kind of procrastinating myself because I, I couldn't speak. I couldn't, uh, wasn't feeling like I should be doing anything. But as we look at God's word today, I think you'll find great encouragement as I did throughout the week, even without being able to speak. But today we're going to be talking about speaking and needing to speak and uh, the necessity for that. So as you are here, whether you're regular or whether you're visiting, Hopefully you'll hear God's word today and it'll encourage you to speak more boldly for him. Let's pray as we begin though. Lord, thank you for our morning together, this time that we can join together with other voices, with other hearts that have been moved and shaped by your spirit. And God, that brings us together in unity for the sake of proclaiming your word to the world around us. God, as we are here today, we hope that uh, your word will restore us will strengthen us, will give us the boldness that you have called for as we hear these words. And God, just uh, allow us to have understanding as we study through this book of 1 Peter for a moment today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned, this morning we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Peter. So you can kind of turn there, but we've been looking at 1 John, so your Bible should fall open to 1 John. So we're going to go back in time and even just a few pages in your Bible to 1 Peter. It's just before 1 John as it lands in what we have. So as we look at the letters of Peter, these are letters that were written to the same people as the book of 1 John. The same area received these letters and uh, the same church. I would say some of the same people who received the letters of 1 Peter also received John's letters, but there's a little gap there. There's about 30 years between the two, probably, when they wrote. And they were both written to believers at a time when they were being discouraged from their faith. And we've, we've seen in 1 John, they're being discouraged by the persuasion of those people who have some other knowledge, some other ideas about who Christ is and what's going on. Well, in 1 Peter, they're being discouraged by persecution. Persecution trying to draw people away from what they know to believe and true and their understanding of salvation and to be back into the world, to just mesh in to what's going on around them. So these non-believers in Peter's time, they weren't just trying to go for the philosophical. They were going to go for the, the whole life of the believer. You better not believe these things or you will suffer for it is the idea. So persuasion, persecution, these messages of discouragement that are used against the church haven't really changed since the time of Eve. And then it wasn't just the church, but against God as a whole. Satan says, did God really say? And then you see this idea of persuasion against the truth happening. Or not much later, Cain killing his brother Abel over worship. And then you see persecution cutting into humanity and bringing up its head well, modern-day opposition to Christianity is very much the same through persuasion and persecution. And it hasn't slowed down as you look across the world. 
we're not out of the weeds. Some countries maybe favor one more than the other, but they're both still alive and well. As we look today at uh, this book of 1 Peter, and specifically 1 Peter 3.15, there's scattered believers who received a personal letter from Peter against their very real external pressures. They were not feeling good about their belief in Christ at times because of the pressure that came upon them. And this time in the form of persecution, even to the point of death for some of them. And the more persecution was just out of sight, as the Emperor Nero increased his hatred toward believers, his was probably, they didn't know the full ramifications yet as Peter wrote this, but the Holy Spirit guiding Peter knew exactly what the church needed. Nero's persecution hadn't been loosed in its full, and he was in Rome, and these guys are in another place. We're going to see a map here in just a minute about that. But the Roman Empire wasn't especially known for their treatment of believers. And you may even think back to the treatment of Christ himself. That should give you a picture of the idea of how Rome treated the believers. Well, the state of affairs for the recipients of Peter's letter, they were exiles, they were strangers, they were aliens in a foreign land, and yet they're called by God. They're set apart by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ in the midst of what they're doing. So we're going to drop in on that starting in chapter 3, verse 15. So you can head that direction in your Bible. But remember, as we're thinking about this letter to the believers, they didn't have a nice book like this. They didn't have nice numbers that tell us all where to go so we can jump there quickly. That's for our sake now because we have all of the letters. We have all of the correspondence, all of the words of the prophets in one place as a result of God's sovereign hand. So we need a little more help to navigate around it together. But hopefully you can find 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter's letter was handwritten and probably delivered to these churches that you'll see up on the screen. There they are. <laughs> Almost. There we are. So they're in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. Oh, that's okay. Well, if you don't see it, that's fine. They're also, they're all in this area called Asia Minor. And until 100 years ago, they, that area had that name. Now it has a different name altogether. And that's named Turkey. We've talked about that a little bit before. We'll come back to that later. And even the screen, we'll worry about that later. But let's look at our Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let me read that one more time. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I trust that many of you have found that passage familiar. Many times I've seen this verse I, I even searched online the other day that you can buy a pillow from Etsy with this on there. Maybe just a partial quote, always be prepared. But when I see that, I sometimes just, you know, I start developing my own definitions for the terms. What, what is it talking about? I might not be even thinking about the author, the recipients of the letter, what the context is at all. We learned last week that context is king when it comes to understanding the word of God. We even repeated it a few times. But 
it might just become a motto or a platitude, always be prepared, always be prepared. And on its own, it can really stand as a strong argument for what we call apologetics today. That's the Greek word for defense, always be ready to give a defense, apologetics. But I think it can also give a misdirection from the emphasis here in what Peter's talking about and what Peter intended for the people so that today, instead of being able to give a reason for the hope that we have, we've got 50 other things around that we're worried about giving a reason for, which are all good. They're actually, there's no problem with apologetics. But as we look at what Peter has written, we want to see what is he really talking about? What is the hope that they're supposed to talk about? So Peter's letter and even this, this one verse have been instructive through the church, to the church, since its very first public reading. That was probably 2,000 some years ago. But it serves as an admonishment, an exhortation, encouragement, and even restraint about how we're supposed to talk to believers, both individually and collectively as a church. To the world we live in, how does that look as we proclaim these things? So we need to think about this verse back in its context, back in its historical setting, looking at what Peter was teaching and even expecting the believers in Asia Minor, which are kind of now up there on the board, that little uh, circle, you can even make it go red if you want. <laughs> so, but that is the whole area of modern day Turkey. Those are the borders of it right there. And all these places that were preached to land in that zone. We'll look at that later because this zone still has a lot of the same things going on to believers as it did in the time of First Peter. Well, in the first half of Peter's book, or his letter, he hasn't mentioned much about persecution. If you read through this, he hints at it a little bit. In verse 1, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, you have been grieved by various trials. In chapter 2, verse 20, he says, but if when you do good and suffer, you endure it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So there's not a lot of suffering that you hear yet, but where this verse 15 is placed, it's sandwiched in between two ideas of suffering, just before the verse in verse 13 and just after in verse 17. These seem to be upright fellows going about their business, living for Christ, and so we kind of dropped into verse 15, but as we expand that survey, look there at verse 13, it says, now who is there to harm you? This is chapter 3, verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And then after verse 15, at verse 17, it says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. There's suffering around this idea of proclamation. It's almost like that could have been one sentence, verse 13, 14, and then 17. But 15 is sandwiched in there and gives an idea about what Paul was reminding the believers of for a Christ-like response in the midst of suffering. Suffering for good, as verse 14 said, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. So it's not a new thought. The church didn't have a lot of books spread around at that time, but the book of Matthew would have been one that had been distributed, people have been talking about. It had been written much closer to the time of Christ than Peter's letter. But if you think about what Jesus said 
And Peter was standing there listening to him even when he said these things at the Beatitudes when he's given this sermon on the mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are when the others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad in it for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those ideas that Peter brings into his passage here just before saying always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you set the stage really of where their hearts should be, what they should be thinking about in the midst of persecution. It redirects the believer's mind from the immediacy of the persecution to the immediacy of God who is right there. And Peter points to hope in the midst of these things, in the midst of persecution and suffering. If we have hope, it drives out fear. It replaces trouble. It sets our hearts and minds on Christ. And verse 14, going into verse 15, says just that. It says in verse 14, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. If you think of all the apostles who could have written this, who God could have chosen, I think Peter is definitely one who wrestled with this admonition before. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now he had grown up in his understanding, and he had an application of this truth in his own life. What did, what did Peter do during his trial of Jesus? Yeah, he denied Christ. He denied Christ three different times. He ran from being associated with following Christ. He didn't speak up of the hope that he knew in Christ. In the midst of that persecution, he feared being caught up in it instead of setting his heart on the place where it should be. He didn't want to be known as a follower of someone who was causing all this trial, all these issues. Did he love Christ? Yes. Did he proclaim him as the Lord? Yes, he was the first one to proclaim that this is the Son of God. And that was something that heaven had told him, Jesus said. But the words right after that, he wanted to keep Christ from going to the cross, keep Christ from doing what he was supposed to do to fulfill our salvation. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So Peter has had opportunities for fear and being troubled. And sometimes, the farther away he was from Christ, the, the more he gave in to those troubles. And you see his mouth get him into trouble. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, he met Peter. And for the three times Peter denied Christ, Jesus came and restored him three times, telling him, feed my sheep. So Peter was restored and strengthened by the Lord. And here, many years later, as he writes this to the letter, to these believers, he can say with full confidence, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear of them. Have no fear of what they fear, as the Greek kind of says. Don't be troubled by it. It's not supposed to be what is filling your mind day by day. And verse 15 starts right here. But a contrast to that. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. So the heart of the believer shouldn't turn away from hope in God because of these worldly pressures. Instead, it should be driven back to him as a result of these worldly pressures. In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Peter was just a fisherman when he was chosen by God. He wasn't one of the smart guys that were studying under the rabbis, getting all the training, but he seems to know the word of God. He seems to know the Old Testament that was given him. And even here as he speaks in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, 
it's almost an allusion back to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 13. There Isaiah was told, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. The Assyrians are, are on the brink of attack. They're ready for invasion, and that is what was said. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. So we see a, a switch of thought process as a result of the hope that the believers have. It's not any longer driven by fear or the trouble that's around them. It's driven by God and their fear of him. Let him be your dread, as Isaiah said. It's the alternative to fear and intimidation. It's recognizing Christ alone as Lord. That, that's a different person ruling your heart than fear and trouble. That's a different eternal salvation ruling your thoughts rather than the temporary things of the world around you. The hope that Peter calls the church to defend in the very next pen stroke has to be rooted in their hearts. It's the antidote to intimidating fear. That uh, song that we sang, Lord from Sorrow's Deep I Cry, that's from Psalm 42. You might know that psalm if you read the first verse, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after you, O Lord. That's the idea here in these words, thinking where our hope is at, that gives us a longing for, for those things that are eternal instead of the temporary. We're supposed to honor the Lord and recognize him as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy in your hearts. He, he actually represents and embodies all that we are called to be by a holy God. And Peter knows this. He's already told the readers this earlier in the letter in chapter 2, verse 15. He says, but as he who has called you is holy, you also should be holy in all your conduct. So Peter's repair, prepared his readers with a response to fear. This whole section, verse 15, is really a response to what's going on around them, a response to the fear that's there and the persecution, and a response to the demand for the hope that is in them. What is, what is going on in your hearts? Why do you not submit to what we're telling you? Why do you submit to God? And Peter's work here is to set the inner being, have it settled on truth and the sovereignty of God so that then when their words come, they're able to speak what is right and true about him. But God's work and assurance in our individual lives, it's not supposed to just rest there. We're not supposed to feel content, sit here together, locked away until we're reunited with Christ. That's not the idea. That's why Peter brings in this section that follows. In the same breath, he informs the men, the women, the children, all those who, in the, who are in the church, that now that you're confident of what's in here, in your heart, always be ready to defend it from here, your mouth. So even as persecution is there for your hope, you're called to a proclamation of that hope. And that's where 2 Peter 3.15 continues. He says, always be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You see some of these guys throughout the New Testament. They're making a defense for themselves, maybe. You see that once or twice. You, but more often than not, out of the different times that you see that word apologia or defense being used, it's a defense for the gospel and the church partnering along in that, in the defense of the gospel. Philippians 1 He's there in prison, and he's praising the church for the work that they have done 
to be a part of the defense of the gospel that he has proclaimed. He does that wherever. Even as he was pulled before Agrippa, his defense of himself, what is, what is your defense for all these accusations? All he does is proclaim the gospel. And at the end, he's shut off. He says, why do you keep, do you think you will make me a Christian in just this one time? And that was his goal. Yes, to proclaim the hope that God has given. A defense of himself was a defense of what God is doing. Always be prepared to make a defense. Always be prepared. It kind of sounds like that Boy Scout motto. How many, any Boy Scouts in here? We got a couple over here. Be prepared. I don't think Baden-Powell was thinking of this verse when he coined that slogan. But the Scouts, their whole idea was sought to make young boys prepared for any activity that they might encounter. Well, Peter's desire here, long before that slogan was made, Peter's desire is to make all believers prepared to proclaim hope in any opportunity that they encounter. This one phrase in verse 15, and specifically the one word defense, you know, in modern times, I mentioned earlier how it's, it's used, a lot of books have been written about it. We have how-tos, best methods, specific arguments on a variety of different things that are very helpful for the church. And it apparently wasn't even until 1794 that apologetics was a theological doctrine, us defending the word of God, defending something about God in that. And it's branched out into many different views now. One uh, recent expert said there's three different aspects of apologetics. You have to have proof, you have to de defense, and then offense. So you're presenting a rational basis for faith, answering the objections of unbelief, attacking the foolishness of unbelieving thought. So as you read the verse again, though, in its context, does any of that stand out to you as part of what Peter was writing to the believers? Was he anticipating these dispersed, scattered people to have a structured response the way that we do in apologetics now? I don't think so, but he did want them to have a structured response, but the response really focused in on the reason for the hope that is in you. His whole book is about hope. And Peter was known as the apostle of hope because of this reason. He wants to refocus on what God has done, what he is doing now, and what he's going to do in the future. There is hope there. It's not on your life and all the things that are going. So found in the very admonishment and exhortation and encouragement of Peter, we find everything the church needs for a defense of our faith. Not just a defense of our faith, but a defense of the hope that is in us. The Spirit carried him along in the writing of Scripture. He knew exactly what these people needed, what they would need to be able to respond in the situation around them. And we too can accomplish the same, always being prepared to give an account or give a defense by rehearsing, by reminding each other, by repeating, and even recommitting Peter's message of hope in our own hearts and minds. So it's really the same idea as what Pastor Wayne talked about just recently about repeating the gospel to yourself, telling it to yourself over again so you know what God has done. You put your hope in that. It's really, you know, this is kind of a spoiler, but it's not just Peter's message. It's not just John's message, but it's the whole New Testament. If you haven't been reading through the Bible and you happen to go through the New Testament, you'll find that. This is what God has called us to, a hope, the good news of Jesus Christ. So what do the believers of Asia Minor even know about hope? We don't know how the churches began there. Paul was limited in his expanse of where he could preach. 
But John, toward the end of the first century, is writing them. So the church was established. It was continuing. Here's Peter, probably in 60, 65 AD, writing to the church that was established. And we don't hear anything about it from the time of Peter when he was there. And at least Asia knew, which is part of Asia Minor, they knew. But the people must have proclaimed, must have shared what they knew. Those who were converts from Paul then went and proclaimed the gospel so that many could be scattered across the whole area. Well, we're going to look at the hope, the hope that Peter gave these people as we finish up this little section. The hope that Peter provided for the believers as he calls them to always be prepared. If you uh, turn back in your Bible, maybe unroll your your scroll a little bit, back to the f- first Peter chapter one. Most of us can flip there or swipe with our hand if you don't have the original. But let's look here at first Peter chapter one, verse 13. If they're called to give an answer to the hope that is in them, they better know what that hope is. And I think Paul or Peter gave that to them here. Verse 13 says, therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The foundation of our hope is future-looking. To Christ, to his return, our reward. We're told to set our hope fully on that. That word fully is the same as completely or perfectly. Sometimes you see it in 2 Timothy 3.17 where the man of God is made complete by the word of God. It uses that same idea there. Our hope, though, is supposed to be that completely set on one point. Verse 12, the first 12 verses there, they culminate in this call to hope. Not just a call to hope. It's not just saying, I hope hope you all hope. No, it's a, a command to hope. Set your hope. It's an imperative. It's a must that Peter addresses to the believers there and all of his readers even now to respond. Set your minds, your hope. It is an individual. It's for all who hear. It's for all who respond collectively. You set a flag in the ground that says, here lies my hope in Jesus Christ. And it's not just a single point. You don't just set it there and and forget about it and walk away. It's continually Set your hope fully on the grace. Day by day, you're setting your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can't just say, we hoped in Christ on October 2, 2022 at 11.23 a.m. No, we hope in Christ today. We hope in Christ when we put our trust in him originally. We keep hoping in Christ until his return. Until the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is one basket we should put all our hope in, fully, completely. The hope that is in you is founded on Jesus Christ and looking to his return. But it's not just future looking. The effect of our hope is God exalting. Look at verse 3, just before where we read. The effect of our hope is God exalting. Verse 3 starts out, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. You, who by God's power are being guarded through your faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. The effect of our hope is God exalting. In this you rejoice. We look at what he has done in the past, what he's currently doing now, and it looks to the future again, and it's always in this you rejoice. Even at the beginning, blessed be the God. We see that our hope is alive in us. It's a living hope. It's not just some dead hope of the pagans on a stick that they have stuck in the ground from years ago, the, a totem or a, an idol, or even as we have over here, we have uh, this uh, idol going on in our own town. No, that's not what hope is in. It's not a dead item. It's a living hope, a living hope that is alive in us, and it's alive because we know Christ has risen from the dead as well. It's, it's confirmed in that, a hope that is strengthened knowing what Christ has done and knowing that God is the power that is guarding our salvation until he comes again, ready to be revealed at the last time. So our hope, it culminates in future eternal inheritance. And even now, God's power guarding you, guarding me, it brings joy, rejoicing, even if you have been grieved by various trials. So we have the foundation of that hope that's future looking. We have an effect of the hope that's God exalting. In verse 18, we see it's not only that, the payment for our hope is Jesus dying. Peter hasn't left it in just ambiguous terms. It is concrete where our hope is found. There is one person and one act that our hope is found in. Chapter 1, verse 18, he tells the believers, knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Life apart from Christ is pointless. Even the believers here, they had just been following their ancestors before them. He's, it's futile. It's pointless. There was nothing. They didn't know the good news that had been proclaimed. But now they were ransomed. They were paid for. They were redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Why would someone need to be ransomed? Why would a person need to be ransomed? That doesn't make any sense. But yet, Peter lets them know not only were they ransomed, there was a need, but that need was paid by Jesus Christ. He doesn't just stop in that one verse. He talks about this through the rest of the passage. That Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. You who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our hope is by Jesus dying. Chapter 2, verse 24, continues on that hope. Gives even more of a picture of the reason why Jesus had to die. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There was a sin issue that the believers knew about. They had heard the good news. They had been told of the salvation through Jesus Christ, but it was their sin that had kept them separated from God. And there needed to be a solution for that, or a ransom for that. That's what Christ did. He himself 
bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He just said these guys are being persecuted for righteousness. Why would you want to proclaim that hope so that more persecution could come? It's because there is hope in these words, what Christ has done, eternal hope, in contrast to the temporary pain and suffering that might go on here. In chapter 3, verse 18, right after the verse we've been looking at, right after they were told to be ready to give a defense for the reason for the hope that is in you, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And the payment for our hope is not just suffering. It's not a, what a bunch of people are doing. It was suffering, but it's suffering by one person, Christ. He suffered once for sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. That, we might, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Peter started his, his letter to them talking about them being alive in the spirit. We read about that in verse 3 where he said he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. The hope that is in the believers is constantly there as a result of what God has done. And it demands a response from the believers. We see the foundation, the effects, the payment. We also see a response here in chapter 1 verse 14. As a result of this hope that you've put in Christ, it says then in 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Or in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Our response to all that God has done, the believer's response then to all that God has done, was obedience. He actually started the first words of his letter to the people with this idea of obedience. He says, To those elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood, God's hope wasn't just there, again, to rest in them. It was for them to respond to in obedience and exalting God. That obedience continues throughout the book. And that's what he, he talks about, this hope and what it leads to, whether it be those who are around us submitting to authority, those in families, husbands and wives, masters and slaves, submitting to Christ, all of that is an obedience to what he's done based on the hope that he has given us. And that's why he directs them again in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. This is the thinking of obedience, just as Christ is obedient even to death on the cross. It says here again in verse, verse four, chapter 4, verse 2. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. The response to this hope is obeying for the will of God. So Peter, urging to always be prepared, brought with it everything 
that the scattered believers needed to give a response to the hope that is in you. They could be assured of the new birth God had given him. They could be assured of the blood that Jesus had shed for them. They could be assured and know the work of the Spirit to set them apart in this hostile world. This was the gospel made known to them so that they could make it known to others. So the hope that was in them was ready to be proclaimed. Peter made sure that it was on the tip of their tongues. He even ended his letter, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying, that this is the true grace of, grace of God. Stand firm in it. The whole book circles around the hope that, of what God has done. The realities Peter addressed in this letter of, to the churches of Asia Minor, Asia Minor they're the, the same realities the church faces today. Now, there's a little map that you can look at while I'm talking here. In our nation, we may feel, you know, a little glimmer of suffering. We've, we often think that any opposition is suffering. But jump to India in your mind. We had two men in the last few months talk about what has happened there. And there, they're, they're suffering. They received at the hands of unbelievers beatings, imprisonment, threat of death, and for some of their group, sometimes death. Up in Canada, just a, you know, a hop, skip away, just since the p pandemic policing, pastors are imprisoned for encouraging meeting together. What, two weeks ago, a pastor was again brought to court for encouraging meeting together too closely. You can think of nearly any country around the world where their life-threatening, ministry-hampering suffering is currently happening, whether it's through persuasion, which maybe more what's going on in our realm of the woods at the moment, or persecution, which you see across the world. It follows believers wherever they are. You can see up on the screen, all of those that are black, those are restricted to Christianity. Every one of those countries, and Asia Minor, which is in red, is one of those that's currently restricted from proclaiming the gospel, from giving a defense for the hope that is in them. Even that is illegal. All the rest of those countries are in the same boat. Their governments, the individuals in the countries want nothing to do with Christ. It's not like they don't respond to Christ when he has called them and when he's proclaimed, but as a nation, they don't want to know about Christ and they cause persecution. Peter knew that persecution followed believers wherever they are. And the believers he wrote to knew about it. Two millennia later, you know about it. And as Peter said, to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an, an example that you might follow in his steps. So always be prepared. If we're living in response to the hope as Peter described, we'll not only suffer for it, but we'll be asked to answer for it. It should be an expectation that we will be required to respond to either the individuals or the courts, whether formally or informally. It's then we should be concerned about the person we're talking to as Peter ends his verse. It says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Whenever we're called, we're thinking about our words. We have some restraint on what's being said. Verse 15, using those words, gentleness, meekness, humility. It's our response to men in a restrained with compassion for their souls. And the next word, respect. It's actually that Greek word phobos. You might hear it in phobia, arachnophobia, or something like that. It's a fear. We know it as fear. But this fear is a response to God. We have a response to men of gentleness, compassion for their souls, a response to God for a fear. Fear God. 
In a separate letter to a Corinthian church, Paul sums up this fear of God by these words. It says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So our response to suffering, answering for the hope that is in us, it's in our actions. We don't let fear rule them. We don't fear those who are persecuting us. We fear God. In our words, we're compassionate to men and committed to God. So Peter wanted his readers to live triumphantly in suffering without abandoning hope, without becoming bitter, without losing faith in God. And when they're obedient to God's word, despite antagonism, Christian lives will testify to the truth of the gospel. They're testifying it from our silence and through our words. Peter's letter, letter here, it's meant to give the heart of the church encouragement, a bolstering, the training to go into a dying and dark world with the only truth that can save, the only hope that matters. If someone were to ask you in any of these countries, what is the hope that is in you? Hopefully the first words out of your mouth are Jesus Christ, not one of the other aspects of that. You might have to get there, but Jesus Christ. You might not have a chance to last much longer than saying, my hope is in Jesus Christ and what he has done, the salvation that he brings for my sin against him, his death on the cross that took that sin, his resurrection that proved his dominion over sin and over all these things. And he lives now so that I can live with him and have a living hope. So when you come to that verse, I hope that it makes you have this question, does the good news of salvation bring you hope or give you hope that's worth proclaiming to the world? Are you ready for that whenever someone asks you for the hope that is in you? If not, come talk to me. Come talk to pastor. Actually, no, don't. Come talk to any one of you because every one of you should be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word as you gave it to Peter to be spoken in these churches. Lord, as you prepared them for the suffering that was to come, the suffering that you had already started and continued as a result in the lives of believers, Lord, thank you for the hope that you gave, that you didn't leave us empty-handed, high and dry, waiting for some response, but instead you gave us everything we need for life and godliness through your word. Lord, we say the same things as what Peter said to the congregation. Father, help us humble ourselves under your mighty hand of God so that at the proper time you may exalt us. Help us to cast all our care on you because of your care for us. Lord, guide our minds that we'll be sober-minded, be watchful, for our adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. God, help us to resist him, to be firm in our faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. And after we have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. <coughs>